you open your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, as we begin a journey through this book. It's been about 37 years since Peter was fishing one day, and Jesus walked up to him and asked he and Andrew, James, and John to leave their nets and to follow him. And as astonishing as that sounds, what is even more astonishing is that they did. And they never returned. They never went back to the life that they walked away from, which is a clear picture for us. It's been about 34 years since Peter saw Jesus ascend back to heaven with all the the fear that he carried and the uncertainties and the sin that is fresh in his mind. Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit indwells, and Peter powerfully stands up before the Jews and proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's now about 67 AD. Peter is in Rome. Nero is on the throne. Peter will tell us quite a bit in this first chapter that we won't get into today. One of the things that he will tell us is that He's about to be executed. Um, This letter is in almost perfect timing with 2 Timothy, which the ladies are going to be going through. And Paul tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I think in verse 6, that he is about to be executed. Um, David Jeremiah says there is uh, a historical account that says that Peter and Paul were executed on the same day. Um, Nero and Satan were attempting to extinguish Christianity, figuring that if the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter no longer had a voice, that the church would fade away, that it would cease to exist. And much like the execution of their Messiah, the church grew. Um, What are we gonna do without Peter? What are we gonna do without Paul? Wasn't the question. The message today, and we're going to get into a few verses of this letter, is this divine nature that Peter describes to us. Have you ever been frustrated and and looked at and maybe started to take apart an appliance and and figure out what in the world is going wrong with it and, and, and everything seems to be in order, no fuses are blown, nothing seems to be, no wire is broken, there should be something happening. And through a silly discovery, you figure out that it's not plugged in. And this this picture becomes real in 2 Peter. Peter is going to describe to us what we can actually plug into immediately always power that is unceasing um, provision that is endless and Peter is going to explain to us he's going to tell us so many things in chapter one he's going to tell us that absolutely the the word of God is nothing to do with man that it's from the mouth of God that that the prophets who wrote this were carried along by the Holy Spirit he's going to authorize Paul's letters he's going to take us back to John chapter 21 when Jesus told him that he would be crucified 
and he's going to explain that that time is now, that, that Peter is going to leave. And, and Peter and Paul, 2 Timothy for Paul, 2 Peter for Peter, are so much unlike us. They are overwhelmed with concern that the truth will go forward. There is very little thought given to the fact that Peter is about to be crucified and Paul is about to be beheaded. Paul in his letter to Timothy is just urging Timothy and urging others, urging teachers of the Bible to bring the truth forward that it has no reliance on Paul, no reliance on Peter. Let's pray as we begin this study. Heavenly Father, to even put our feet in the water of this epistle written by the Apostle Peter is going to bring questions about in our own minds. Questions like, okay, the Bible is true. This is true. Why am I not walking in this power? What do I have to do to walk in this power? Lord Peter is doing everything he can through the Holy Spirit to explain exactly how to answer those questions. So I pray that he will answer them. I pray that you, God, will answer these questions through the words of your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read the first four verses. That's what we're going to look at today. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. We're going to zero in and build to that divine nature in verse 4 and hopefully better understand it. We've talked about it at length in church builders, and I keep finding myself back in 2 Peter every week. So we're going to work through this book, and I will learn with you. Verse 1, his statement, much like the Apostle Paul, when we read Apostle Paul's first letter, which is the book to the Galatians, he, does, he, he delivers his um, his, his message by beginning, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, which is very much how Peter begins 1 Peter. And by the end of Paul's life, he considers himself the chief of sinners when he writes to Timothy at the end of his life. Peter here, instead of addressing us as an apostle, he tells us in the correct order that he's a servant first. To think of Peter as an apostle is correct. To think of an apostle as a different level, a different sphere than ground floor, Peter says is wrong. He says he is a servant, a servant and an apostle of Christ Jesus. Turn back to 1 Peter 4. When you look at 
the list of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and a few other places. The, the number one, the only gift, I should say there are two gifts, that are mentioned multiple times. The gift, and this will make sense as we study 1 Peter chapter 1, the gift that you are to pursue is teaching God's Word. Every Christian is to pursue the spiritual gift of teaching God's Word. Teaching God's Word, while that is said, is the second most often mentioned gift. The most often mentioned gift, and it's in all of the lists, is serving. And Peter will explain to us in 1 Peter chapter 4, not only is serving the most often mentioned, most universally sought and purposeful gift is to serve others. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, we will build towards that next week when we get into verse 5. But also, every gift is supposed to be an act of service. As we look at verse 10 in 1 Peter chapter 4. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its very various forms. We'll look at that word steward this afternoon. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do it. Do as one speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves they should do so with the strength God provides. There's a lot in that statement there. He says in verse 10 that whatever your gift is, serve people with it. And that's why the gifts of the Holy Spirit are, are not the same thing as the gifts of the, the ministry are not the same as the gift of the mission. Everyone is called to go and preach the gospel. All of the gifts of the Holy Spirit are to be lived out within the body of believers. Every one of them, it says here, is to serve others, to serve others in your own church. Are you serving others in your church? Are you using your gift to serve others in your church? 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says that the manifestation of the Spirit comes through the gifts in the church for the common good. No one's spiritual gift is for them. It is for others. And more specifically, no one's gift is universally for others. It is for others within their family of believers. So Peter says in verse 10, whatever your gift is, use it to serve others. He says in verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. But listen to this sentence. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength that God provides. That's the divine nature that we're going to be looking at in 2 Peter. He goes on, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle. An apostle, again, we won't completely review, but there are criteria for apostle in the Bible so that people who call themselves apostles today, and many people do, do not fit the criteria of apostle in the Bible. 
So it means someone who is sent. That's what the word itself means. But Paul lays out for us the criteria of apostles, that, they, that miracles happened around them and through them, that they were sent directly by Jesus Christ. Those two things alone, before you even get into the rest of the list, had to have been personally sent by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had to maneuver supernaturally to the Apostle Paul so that he would be qualified as an apostle, just like Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who walked with Jesus while Paul was a Pharisee and not a believer. He says, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. So first of all, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, this is an important statement. Um, in a, apologetics, people will say, well, what does Jesus say? Or, or Jesus never said that he was God. Or Jesus never made this claim. Well, all of those can be answered. Um, over and over again, Jehovah's Witnesses bake, base their foundation on Jesus not being God. So there are hundreds of verses in the Bible, in their Bible, that say that Jesus is God. But here is one of the clearest places in Scripture, so it's important for you to underline and remember. There are multiple churches in Mendota, Illinois, who teach that Jesus Christ is not God. Peter says, let's establish something here. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, and to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Let's look at a couple of other places. Turn in your Bible to Titus chapter 2. Dave read these verses last Wednesday night. In Titus 2, Paul is anticipating in these verses the rapture. And he correctly addresses Jesus Christ as Almighty God in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Another important theological statement. Who is the gospel for? All people. I have to add that to my... Um, page that I have on election. Verse 12. Grace teaches us to say no. That's the point that we were making Wednesday night. How do I learn what not to do? Grace. How do I learn what to do? James said, are either together or they are dead. No, Paul says. Uh, excuse me, say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope. The blessed hope is the rapture, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Paul's purpose there is two things. To acknowledge Jesus as our great God and Savior, 
and to acknowledge that his, the reason he came was that we would live godly lives. He says that three times in two verses. Turn to 1 John chapter 5 to see another place where we see the same language that Peter is using about Jesus. First John chapter five, first John chapter five and verse twenty. Where John writes, We know also that the Son of God, so he's acknowledged there as the Son of God, has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him, the Son of God, who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only, he is the true God of eternal life. These are important theological and apologetic verses that there's a, a good place there where he is identified as the son of God and the true God. The Son of God is separated by much of Christendom, much of even evangelical churches today. The Son of God means that he's less than God, means that he was created by God. It doesn't mean any of those things. He is equal to God. He is the true God. He is the great God, as Paul writes in Titus chapter 2. Let's turn back to 2 Peter. Another important statement in verse 1 where he says, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have, a, have received a faith as precious as ours. Wednesday night we looked at that in the Bible, the faith is the word of God. It is the truth of God. It is primarily the truth about Jesus Christ. And the entire Bible is the truth about Jesus Christ. It is a history book because it is his story. Every verse in the Bible, even difficult ones to understand, even monotonous seeming verses, the purpose in that verse is to point to the Son of God. Doesn't matter if you're in Revelation or Matthew or Leviticus, that is the purpose of the Word of God. And Paul or Peter says here to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. This faith based on the truth of God's word. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's the starting place, the Bible says. The fear of the Lord is an absolute certainty that he's telling the truth. If you are sure that God is telling the truth, the words on the page become more than words on a page. So the fear of the Lord is the certainty of the truth of God. And that's why Paul calls him and John calls him and Peter calls him the true God. So this faith that we have received, turn to Ephesians. We're gonna look at some of the description of this faith that Peter is describing here. Ephesians chapter one, it's hard to pick out a couple of verses, but we're going to try to do this quickly. A faith as precious as ours. I originally had down that 
we're going to read verses 3 through 14, but we're going to do something else that's important today as well. So I want to just read verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. I ran into a, a brother in Christ who I met regularly when I worked for Karis Chemical, and, and we had a great discussion. And talking about the challenges in church today, and the church that he is in is, is wanting to get linked to a larger church and do sat satellite services and, and things like that. And we were discussing how we're so far today from the biblical church that the biblical church seems like the foreign church that the discipleship and growing and investing in the word of God and living the godly life that he is talking about, um, this faith, this reality that whatever you believe or understand or have figured out from scriptures that Jesus wants to offer you, it's more. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms it is so far beyond what you can see. It is so far beyond what you can imagine and think about. It is everything that he has created. Everything in the aspects of creation in heaven and in the galaxies that are not contaminated by sin. Everything that Jesus has ever touched, he wants to share it with you. But what closes the door, and the door is only closed from our side, is we ask the question, what do I have to do? Instead of, I will follow you. And if we say, I will follow you, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Drop down to verse 13. This is where this journey of faith begins. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the faith, the gospel of your salvation, the good news about sin. Sin isn't good, but there's good news for sinners. The good news is the gospel. When you believed, you were marked in him, in Christ, that's where every spiritual, every physical, every aspect of every blessing can be found is in Christ. And you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That's the faith, the certainty, the hope, the everything. Turn to chapter 2, verses again we're very familiar with. We're still talking about the faith. Verse 8. For it is by grace. Where does grace, where can you find grace? Where does grace come from? Only Jesus Christ. The only place grace can be found by a human being is in Jesus Christ. For it is by that grace that you have been saved through faith. You fear the Lord. What he says is true. You want to follow his son. You accept his offer. Every spiritual blessing is yours through faith. And this is not from yourselves. We'll see this as we study today, that faith is not from yourself. 
Grace is not from yourself. They are both the gift of God, not by works. And when we hear that, and when we grow up with that, I knew this verse when I was pretty small. And my understanding, whether it was because of the way I taught, was taught, or it was just my lack of understanding, is not by works. Not by works. Not by works. Works don't matter. Works don't matter. Works don't matter. That was the message I was getting. What he is saying here is, you're not saved by works. Because faith comes from God, grace comes from God, love comes from God, pursuit comes from God, everything comes from God, and he's waiting for you to open the door. You have to know that all of the saving comes from him. That the reception, that the opening of the door is what's responsible to me. So we read the end of that verse, not by works. Verse 9, not by works, so that no one can boast, no one can say to the answer or to the question, why will God let you in heaven if it gets beyond Jesus Christ and grace? The answer is too long. So it is not by works, verse 9, so that no one can boast, but works are important. Verse 10, once you are in Christ, we are God's handiwork. This is the divine nature Peter is going to explain to us. This is the new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. The divine nature in 2 Peter 1. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Turn to chapter 4 in Ephesians for just a minute. Still talking about this faith as precious as ours that Peter is talking about. Chapter 4, pretty much everything in this chapter is underlined now, and we're going through that on Wednesday nights. What an awesome foundation of truth in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. The calling is the response in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Verse 5, not only are these the faith, but it comes from the Lord. And look at the order here because this is doctrinally important. There is one Lord. There is one Adonai. There is one Kyrios. There is only one who is sovereign to save Jesus Christ. So there is one Lord. There is one faith. If you proclaim his lordship on your life, and you believe in your heart that he raised from the dead, you will be saved by one Lord, the way, the truth, and the life, Lord, Jesus Christ. One faith, you're my Lord. I believe you raised from the dead to, in order to pay for my sins. So one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The order here is important. 
probably at least 80% of people who are baptized in the world are baptized out of order, among other things. Baptism in the Bible, let's just say it in its simplest form, is 100% of the time a faith response. They do it by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So before we talk about immersion and all of those things that are clearly taught from Scripture, faith has to come before baptism. Paul is giving us the, the church doctrinal order in verse 5. One Lord, Jesus Christ. One faith, lordship and belief of his resurrection. One baptism, a testimony publicly to his lordship in your life and what he did by going to the grave for you and raising again. Verse 6, it all comes back to one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. And you've heard me use the word all a lot, so it's, I, this is a dicey question, but who is all in this verse? Only those who are in Christ. He cannot be your father. John 1, 12, those who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. When you receive Christ, you receive the right to become the children of God. So one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. And the apportioned it, we won't go through the rest of this chapter because it would take a while. He gives us all the grace. This is the divine nature. This is the grace Peter's talking about. The moment that a person accepts Christ as their Lord and Savior, everything that they will ever need from power, from provision, from protection is given with a church in mind. So if we went through Ephesians chapter 4, Paul will conclude in these verses by saying the goal of the Holy Spirit is to take these people and bind them so closely together that they are ligaments where each part does its work. Let's go back to 2 Peter. We don't have clarity to the extent of the power that we have access to all of the time in Christ. Verse 2. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. How much grace would you like to have? How much peace would you like to have? How does abundance sound? Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is, as we move through this chapter, this is difficult to comprehend. Um, the word knowledge here, by the way, is important. It's, 
epignosia in the Greek, which you don't have to, there won't be a quiz next week on that, but it implies, in other words, it's important when the word knowledge, I've described it um, practically in, in a way that is the same way that this Greek word means. It means experientially, intimately, knowing. So it is God's word that everything comes through. It is experiencing God's word that Peter is talking about here. So the, the Greek definition of this Greek word is um, an intimate and personal relationship. And it's in the present tense, meaning that I am all in next to Christ all the time. And if that's true about you, you could tell me I have grace and I have peace in abundance. It's overflowing in my life. It, it no longer matters what's going on around me. It matters that I'm intimately walking with Christ. And I have this in abundance as a result. John 17, 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, to know you, the true God. He's praying to his Father and to know your Son. Again, the word know there is the same as the, the form here of knowledge or knowledge. In other words, it doesn't mean intellectual agreement. It means that I'm following Christ so closely and so intimately that the knowledge, the Greek word that Peter is using here, is the description of the relationship that I have with Christ. John says in 1 John 1 that when we don't walk closely with God, if we're not in the light as He is in the light, we break fellowship with Him. This is fellowship that is intimate. The most intimate relationship you can have on earth would give the closest picture that you have of this. Um, let's turn to Proverbs chapter 8 for just a minute and also the reality of the grace and peace. Peter is going to help us understand this, but the reality is that in James and in 1 Corinthians, James and Paul describe that everything comes from the Father. And everything comes through the Son. What Peter is explaining to us here, we will see this word knowledge. If you just look at 2 Peter 1 on your own today. Knowledge, 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 knowledge. An intimate, personal, close relationship with Jesus Christ through His Word. If you have that... Peter is going to explain to us that everything, if you just picture this, this veil and you're, you need something on the other side of it, the veil is the word and the knowledge of God and everything must pass through it. Everything, your, your grace, your spiritual blessings, your food, your strength, your oxygen, your everything you will ever need has to pass through the word of God. If I asked you the, a question today, what in creation was the first thing that Jesus created? Oh, good job, Terry. She gets, she gets a kiss later. I don't do that for everybody, but 
Most people don't know that, and this chapter explains this. It would be good for you to be familiar with this chapter because I've had a Pentecostal friend, and I think Jehovah's Witnesses will go to this place and different places where people believe that Jesus isn't God. And they will read some verses today that we will look at that they believe is about Jesus. But if you start from the beginning, does not wisdom call out, does not understanding raise her voice. This entire chapter is speaking about wisdom and wisdom is actually speaking in the chapter. Um, let's drop down for our purposes to verse 12. I wisdom dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge, there's our word again, and discretion. They're, they are related. This intimate relationship to discretion is knowledge. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance. This is wisdom speaking. Evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight. I have power. By me kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me princes govern and nobles, all who rule on earth. I love those who love me. I misunderstood this when I first started reading the Bible. Um, I, that God was speaking. It is God's voice, but it is wisdom that God is speaking through here. I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. We see that promise in James 1, 5 through 8 and all through the book of Proverbs. Verse 18, with me riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. Would you like any of those? Are they all wrong to have? Riches, honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. I learned a verse in 3 John chapter 2 this week that is so I want to keep it fresh in my mind that God wants us to have these things the right way. And he never wants it to grow ahead of our soul. And wisdom and knowledge will keep those things in portion, proportion. But that's also the source. Verse 19. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of the righteous along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. Would you like to have your treasuries full? It is gained through knowledge. Verse 22, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. I've, I've had this verse pointed out to me and say, this is talking about Jesus. This is when God created Jesus. It's very obvious when you, when you read the chapter, it's talking about wisdom. That before God created the heavens and the earth, before God created the angels, before God created anything, he created all wisdom. So wisdom from man's perspective is, you know what, I've... I've fixed cars so many years now, I have more wisdom. I've farmed so long, I have more wisdom. I've, that's a practical understanding of the English language that I get, I understand. But what he is saying here is that before anything material, including human beings, was created, all wisdom was finished. 
When we go into God's word, we don't have the best choice. We have the only choice. The only place where wisdom described by God can be found is in the Bible. You say, okay, but for our purposes today, all of your blessings come through it. Now are you interested in knowledge? Now are you interested in wisdom? Now are you interested in this divine nature? Verse 22, the Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before the deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. Let's turn back to 2 Peter chapter 1. Sunday school a few weeks ago in Hebrews, in the opening verses of Hebrews, like Colossians 1 and like John 1 and like Genesis 1, we are reminded that everything was created by, for Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus. And in Hebrews chapter 2, it says that everything is sustained by his word. So, an intimate walk with God comes through the knowledge of God's word. And that knowledge of God's word and the one through whom it comes sustains everything. The way Paul says it in Colossians 1, it says that in him all things hold together. So not only did he speak everything into existence, not only was the first thing that he spoke into existence the full counsel of God called wisdom, but he also sustains it all by that same powerful spoken word. Verse 3 in 2 Peter chapter 1, his divine power is theos, dynamis. Um, theos is a derivative of theos. Theos is whenever you see God in the New Testament, it is theos. So this nature, and this will become important, um, whether it's um, in 2 Peter, whether we read it in John chapter 1, um, whether we read it in um, Romans chapter 4, when we are born of God, it is more than we realize. Born of God, we are talking about in this verse, this theos dynamis. When Jesus, Luke is the only one that tells us this. He's the only Gentile gospel writer. When Jesus did miracles, I don't fully understand this, but what Luke explains is that he didn't do them by his power. He did them by dynamis power. The dynamis, the way Peter uses it and Luke uses it, is when the Holy Spirit came on Jesus, it says the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness, the Holy Spirit led him out, the Holy Spirit did this through him. And the, it, it would say in the Gospel of Luke, because the dynamis power was with Jesus, he cast out demons and he healed the sick. So Peter is using this word here, this 
this variation of theos and dynamis. So as we read this verse, his divine power has given us. It's given to us. Everything we need for a godly life. That's what he said in well, pretty much every passage we've looked at today, Titus chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 1, it is, its purpose is a godly life that will glorify Christ and therefore glorify the Father. But this divine power has been given us everything we need for a godly life through knowledge of Him. So in the last two verses, this knowledge of Him, and it's almost the exact Greek word, it's if I'm saying these right anyway. Um, in verse 3, it's egnopanosios instead of sias. Um, almost the exact same word. And we don't have any little children in here. This is the deepest form of intimacy a human is capable of that would describe, if you were going to describe it, the most intimate act between a man and a woman. This is the deepest you can go. If you can have an intimacy with God that is as close as a human being can have, look what he is saying here. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through knowledge of him. A deep, intimate, personal, working through the word of God relationship with God is like having that appliance that doesn't work and all of a sudden you plug it in. Peace and grace and abundance. Every spiritual blessing. Everything, Peter says here, you will ever need plugs in when we move close. So when we hear James say, draw near to God and he will draw near to you, that picture gets emphasized here. If you have knowledge, intimacy, closeness, I want to obey your word. I want to serve you. I want to live a godly life. I want power. Peter says, it's available. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. What an awesome picture that he is giving us here. Um, let's turn to, let's, let's look at the end of that verse. We're going to turn to John 16. At the end of that verse, he says that he has called us by his own glory and goodness. In other words, the, the moral excellence of Christ is what God uses to draw us to Christ. What's the first thing that the moral excellence of Christ usually does to a person? It offends him. So you're saying I'm not good enough. You're saying that he won't just accept me the way that I am. Turn to John chapter 16 and look at what the Holy Spirit is doing to every person on, in history who is lost. 
And Jesus is explaining this. He's explaining this. Peter is describing it there as this moral excellence through this glorious goodness. In John chapter 16 and verse 8, Peter is explaining on the night that he was betrayed that he is leaving, but the Holy Spirit is coming. And in verse, he calls him the advocate in verse 7. And in verse 8, when he comes, this is Pentecost, this is for you and me, the day that we believed. We read that in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When he comes to the world, to the lost people, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus's moral excellence is the only standard of morality. So, the goal in much of our politicians today and the goal of much of our country today is to remove any moral standard. But you can't do it. Christians are wrong for having a moral standard. Wait a minute, that's a moral standard. You can't live without a moral standard. And the moral standard is Jesus Christ. And that's what, that's what the Holy Spirit says to a lost person in John 16, 8. When he comes, he will prove the world to be, I'm good enough. I know there's a God, I know he's in heaven, but these people that call themselves Christians, I'm just as good as them, he will accept me on my terms. You're wrong, the Holy Spirit says. It's not them that he's interested in, when he's talking about moral excellence, he's talking about Jesus Christ. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. You have sin problem? I do too. You have a hell problem? There's only one reason. Because you don't believe in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit says there's a standard. And his name is Jesus. And you'll never meet it. But if you believe in him. Sin. Is taken care of. So in these three things here in verse 9. He says about sin people because people do not believe in me, about righteousness, which has only been displayed once by one person, because I am going to the Father. The moral, excellent example is leaving, where you can see me no longer, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. The Holy Spirit wants a lost person to know that Satan is defeated. Turn back to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is the verse we find where the title of the sermon can be found. Everything has been pointing us to this. Verse 4 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Through these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them, 
you may participate through the promises, through the word of God, through knowledge of him, knowledge of God. He's been telling us through these great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. This is the most important understandable part of these four verses. It's not the biggest part, but it's the most important to understand. When we are born again, a divine nature is put in us. This theos dynamis that was on Jesus Christ when he walked the earth is in us. He literally puts the nature of God in a human being. So not only do we have access of power when we walk closely through, through the knowledge of God, we have the removal of everything else. This divine nature coexists or co-occupies, co-occupants of me temporarily until this is all fulfilled. When I turn to the divine nature, only good can happen. Only obedience and glory and treasures and peace and grace and fruit of the Spirit and all of these things. It is like it was my choice to be saved. I sti we still have that picture of these two voices in the cartoons. But if we t turn to the divine nature, are there things that God cannot do? Yes. <laughs> God cannot sin. God cannot tempt. God cannot lie. God cannot show favoritism. God cannot not love. That's his divine nature. When I turn to what he has planted in me, that's me. Let's look in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 23, this is what Peter calls here a seed. The seed of God is this divine nature. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. For you have been born again, new creation, divine nature of God. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable this seed of God is in you through the living and enduring word of God. Again, what does everything come through? God's word, knowledge of him. We are born again through the word of God and through the word of God, I confess Jesus as Lord over my life and I believe in him for full payment for my sins and he places in me this divine nature that cannot fail. Say, well, Jim, I know you and I know you fail. Then you know where I'm at and where I'm not. When I do, turn to um, Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8, we won't have time for all these verses. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that there is no temptation that's going to cross my path that isn't common to everyone else. And when it comes, there's a way out if I'm walking with the Lord. The only way that Paul could write that verse is if when I'm in the divine nature, sin is impossible. It cannot happen. When I'm in the divine nature. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is describing this in this awesome chapter. Let's just pick up, read a few of the verses. Verse 5, Romans 8 and verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds on what the flesh desires. This could be a saved person and a lost person. But those who live according to the Spirit, this can only be a saved person. Those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. What's the only part of my anatomy that God needs? My mind. When my mind chooses His nature, He transforms me. But those who live by the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. My, the nature of Jim can't do right. But the nature of God, those who are in the realm of the flesh, the nature of Jim cannot please God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Verse 9. You, however... Are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. If this divine nature, you say, well, I don't have access to a divine nature. Well, that's bad news, verse 9. You don't belong to Christ. So you need to either find out, hey, do I belong to Christ or do I belong to him? And I'm not tapping into his divine nature. Turn to 1 John chapter 3 as John makes this really clear, really bold. 1 John chapter 3. As you turn in there, Paul says that when we have this divine nature, when we have the spirit, we have this seed, we are born again. We have this divine nature. He tells Timothy, he says, we don't have a spirit of being timid. He says, Timothy, that's your spirit. But the Holy Spirit, this divine nature is not timid. It is a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. I don't always do right, but I always have power to do right. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Or that was verse four, sorry. Verse five. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. We believe that he has power to get us into heaven in relationship to our sins. We struggle to believe that all the sin from now for the rest of this day, he came to take away. We struggle to give him enough power to do that. He can actually keep me from sinning now? Yes. That's what he came to do. 
his power wasn't partial. Verse 5, you know that when he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. In this divine fellowship with Jesus Christ, if John says it in chapter 1 here, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, there is no darkness at all. None. Verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. I don't have access to this divine power. That's bad news. Good news, he can change that right now. He can bring you into his fold and offer you every spiritual blessing, including his divine nature. Verse 7, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Chapter 2 and verse 6, anyone who follows Christ must live as Christ did. Verse 8, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil. If it's a true statement, I can't stop sinning, this verse says that's a problem. Because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was that he would, was to destroy the devil's work. Listen to this verse 9. This is that divine seed. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. Because they have been born of God. God put God in me. If you believe in Jesus Christ and if you've acknowledged him as your Lord, then God put God in you. One of the promises here in 1 John 3, 9 is, if that has happened, sin's going to stop. Because he says in multiple times here that no one can just keep sinning who has been born of God. You can't do it. God lives in you. Next week will be very practical and he will tell us things that are difficult to do, but we have the power to do. But please understand that if you follow Jesus Christ with your life, the power that you have access to, you cannot be confronted by any circumstance that you lack anything from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know the depth that I can understand what I'm preaching today, but I believe it's true. I believe that when I fail, it's me and I believe that when I succeed, it's you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the reality of what Peter is teaching us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.